This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Hi, folks. Mark Lautenschlager here in the studio again. You can read that here in the home office in front of my laptop, if you'd like. I'd like to set up this week's podcast episodes, yes, plural, by noting that Sam and I were once again socially distant over some number of miles. I say that for two reasons. One, to let you know that while Sam sounds like he's in the studio with me, he is coming in over the internet. And from time to time, there are minor audio flaws when he's talking. Things that sound like a cell phone for just a brief moment. There aren't many, but they're also not his fault. So let me absolve him of that. Blame the internet. Two, as often happens when Sam and I start talking and no one is looking at a watch, we went for over two hours. So once again, this week's episode is split into two episodes to make listening a bit more convenient for you. So without further ado, please enjoy part one of a guided tour of Holy Week. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me uh, not in the studio today is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Smith, who's once again, he's back porching it. I am back porching it. So yes. You can hear the traffic again and the birds again. We just had a helicopter fly over. It's, it's, it's exciting in the world of plantation today. It is. Well, if the helicopter comes back, you know, that's what we're, that's where we're going to be. You're going to hear a helicopter, folks. Uh, we, unless we can, unless we figure out some clever way to filter out just the traffic sounds, I think we're in trouble. But uh, we've concluded our series on Ephesians. Last week was the last podcast on that particular thing. And as we're coming into Holy Week, we thought that maybe it would be a good time to, to sort of take a step back and, and take a look at Holy Week as an entity, as a whole. I think that I think people are, are very accustomed, Sam, to the idea of Holy Week as being a series of events. You have Palm mm-hmm. Sunday, you've got Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, you've got Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. They've, mm-hmm. they've, they're good with these, these standalone events, but, and you know that there's a connection with them because, well, it's all in Holy Week. But I don't know that people have ever really taken the time, or, or we've taken the time, to really examine the interconnectedness of all of these events and the meanings of all of these things. I think that there's a that that there's a sense in which Holy Week is really one entity. Mm-hmm. Agree. You know, and it's not it's not Palm Sunday. Okay, Palm Sunday's over, and what do we have next? No, it's <laughs> it's what happened on Palm Sunday is part of what's going to happen on Easter Sunday. The whole thing, you know, sort of connects together. Yeah, no, I, so the Holy Week is kind of bookended by these two Sundays, Palm Sunday when he enters into Jerusalem um, for the final time, and then you have Easter Sunday, the day of his resurrection. And in between these is a story, and so much of the Gospels uh, focuses on this week, particularly in the Gospel of John, and there's massive, massive amounts of teaching that happen in this week that we're not going to be able to get to, but each day has kind of its its own unique um, theme of what's going on during that day that's very significant to the whole story of redemption. So what is it that precedes 
uh, Palm Sunday. There's, I mean, there's, you know, Palm Sunday is the beginning of the culmination. <laughs> you know, Holy mm-hmm. Week being the culmination of Jesus's ministry on earth. I mean, it's his last week on earth as as one of us. He's, you know, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then after that, well, I guess he's he's around forty more days. But right, but the before idea ascension. before ascension, but. It's coming to the end of his time with his disciples in person and that kind of thing. And I, I know that if I knew that I was kind of if I was coming to the end, everything would be so much more meaningful. And I have to imagine that was also in Jesus's mind as he's with totally. his disciples that I don't have much more time with you. You know, I'm going to be gone and you're going to have to take it from here. <laughs> and yeah. that, there was a lot of concern about that. So as you get closer to Holy Week, you've got all the religious leaders and their animosity toward Jesus is no longer veiled. It's no longer hidden. So uh, if you're reading the Gospel of John, for instance, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, which is just over the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, it's it's a hop, skip, and a jump away. Um, we're told right after that that the, they, the religious leaders started looking for opportunities to arrest him. They want to put him to death. And so news, because it's so close to Jerusalem, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, all of Judea, all of Jerusalem just starts, you know, the the rumor mill and everything else is going and everybody's looking for this Jesus. His fame inside Jerusalem is swelling. And, and we're told when he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, every, the, the religious leaders say the whole world has gone out to, to see this guy um, and they're looking for an opportunity to arrest him. And, and even the apostles, when he talks about going back down south from Galilee, they're like, we don't want to go. Are you, you know, you're going to get arrested. You're going to get killed. And Thomas is, you know, Thomas stands alone saying, I'm, I'm ready. Let's go. You know, it's so when he goes into Jerusalem, he knows he's a marked man from the beginning. Um, and this is going to be coming toward the end. It would have been a nerve wracking thing to come into the holy city. Was there a sense? Was there a sense in which um, Lazar, the the resurrection of Lazarus, uh, you know, it seems like that put put them over the top. It's like the, mm-hmm. that his fame is just continuing to grow, and they really expect it. at that time and in the in the first century there were a lot of alleged messiahs, were there not? I mean, there was a lot of yeah, people that yeah. were claiming to be the messiah, and they were doing things that you know they were showing off, and this and then Jesus shows up and starts to really build a following. Yeah, totally. I mean, when you read the book of Acts and you, you get kind of privy to the conversation of the Sanhedrin, they're referring to past messiahs that have been put to death. You know, and Gamaliel is talking about, you know, these past messiahs. We put them to death and, and their movements went away. And he warns against persecuting the movement of Jesus. He says, if it's of God, it'll take off and we won't be able to fight against it or we'll be fighting against God. So he's talking about all these previous messiah movements that had died off you know as as frauds i wonder if there was a sense in which they were thinking too i mean just trying to imagine now trying to put myself in the mindset of being you know one of these religious leaders back in the time that killing the false messiah or killing the so-called messiah that's Mm -hmm. my trump card put him to death if i can't figure out anything else put him to death Mm -hmm. and the resurrection of lazarus when that story started to go around can you imagine being those guys thinking wait a minute Death doesn't work with this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but they're they're still not believing it. You know, when they're conspiring, they you know the the high priest at the time, Caiaphas, says it's better to put him to death, one person to death, than endanger the whole nation um, with with this Messiah creating a whole bunch of of buzz and getting us in trouble with the Romans. And so, you know, he believes that death will take care of this. You know, they're. 
they see him do these miracles. But like you read the Jewish writings that come later in like the Babylonian Talmud, they don't deny that Jesus was a miracle worker. They call him a sorcerer and the Jewish writings. So, and so they recognized that he had done some inexplicable things, but they attributed his power to demonic works, you know, that he was a sorcerer. Um, and so this is kind of where the religious leaders of that day are coming from. That he's doing, and they even say, he's doing these works by the power of Beelzebub, which means the Lord of the Flies. It's referring to Satan. In the Gospels, it says that. So they're attributing his miraculous powers to something they can't explain, and so they, they assume it's blasphemous, evil, sacrilegious, and that's giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's the ones that aren't just merely interested in, in protecting their power, but those that really are concerned by this movement that's going. Because um, it would have been, for a Jew, back in the first century, to imagine that God had become a man um, who, who walks around and he's having dinner with notorious sinners, drunkards, and he's associating himself with prostitutes, and he's saying salvation is open to the Gentiles. All of this was radically new in that world. And so they see him, they see him right out of the gate as, as somebody who's dangerous. He's, he's a heretic. Uh, and when, so when he confounds them with his wisdom and puts them in their place, when they confront him on theological issues, it was tremendously embarrassing to them, and they hate his guts. <laughs> you know, it, it does. It, when we talk through the stories like that, and you start to think about, uh, you know, how much that that he transformed the world that that he was a part of back in, mm-hmm. the, in the first century, I, I find myself thinking he would do the same thing even today. If Jesus oh came goodness. in the 21st century, he would not be playing any of these religious games. No. You know, he would be, it just, he's such a radical guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and everybody who thinks, everybody who's comfortable and thinks, oh, Jesus would fit neatly into my side would probably be very angry with Jesus. Yeah. Because Jesus does not fit anyone's side. He calls on everybody to crucify parts of what they believe and what they hold dear. And, and it's, it's not easy to follow him. And I, you know, the reality is, is if you're following Jesus, but you haven't had to give up any of your own little personal treasures, you know, your deeply held beliefs, if he's not challenging any of those things, then you need to examine whether you're really following Jesus because he, he, <laughs> he turns over, he turns over lots of tables in your heart. You know, he made that he made that statement one time talking to was he talking to the disciples when he said, unless you, you know, unless somebody hates their father and mother. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and he didn't mean you had to hate your father and mother, but he was talking about the level of of devotion and commitment that you would have to make to be his follower. He's saying it's going to make the love for your parents look mm-hmm. like hate. You know, it's like you because. And the people that are shocked at that statement sometimes, I know I've had been in Bible says that, what does he mean, hate your father and mother? I'm like, by comparison, okay? Right. You know how much you love mom and dad. He's saying that the kind of love you're going to have for him is going to make that look like hate by comparison. So if you're very casual when it comes to your love for Jesus, oh, I don't know that it's the right kind of love. <laughs> yeah. If Jesus yeah. is just there to make you feel good on the weekends, I don't think this is the right Jesus, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, he, he, he wants all of your heart, not just part of it. So, and, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. And, and it's not, you know, the Christian faith, though it's an, a radically freeing and, and liberating faith, 
it does require you to be all in. You know, it's it's not the cafeteria brand where you go, oh, you know what, I like this, and, and I like this, but I'm I'm not going to take that. You know, he he wants your whole allegiance. You know, and I think that that's I'm going to park there for just one second because there's a big difference between you're a Christian because you're all in or you're all in because you're a Christian. You know, when you flip those things around, because there's there are. You know, that's one of the things about the Christian faith that I think is is often misunderstood because we say, well, it's Jesus plus nothing. You know, it's like Jesus, forget, you know, God died on the cross, paid for your sins, you're forgiven, you come by faith, you don't have to, he's not asking you to clean up your life first and everything else. But on the same token, we are saying that if on the other side of that, if the response that you have to grace received is, wow, I'm glad that's over, now I can get away with everything. <laughs> Yeah, you didn't get it. You didn't get it. And you probably didn't really receive the grace you thought you did. Because, you know, grace isn't an excuse to now sit down and do absolutely nothing. This idea, the the idea here, and we're going to see this as we, you know, especially as we kind of get into Holy Week, because, because one of the things that happens when Jesus goes into the city on Palm Sunday is he encounters someone that you know, Zacchaeus, that, that has that response to grace. Um, so there's a lot of it's there is a very real sense i think in which it's appropriate to look at how we respond to the grace we receive mm-hmm. to, to as a way of understanding whether we're whether we authentically encountered that grace or whether we mm-hmm. were just looking for somebody to pat us on the head and make us feel good about ourselves because that's not why jesus is here he's not to, he's not <laughs> here to make you feel good about yourself um, if anything, like you said, he's here to make you die and crucify parts of yourself. Uh, and if you've yeah. never had that discomfort, then you know. And, and and I think it's clear. It's important to clarify. Like he doesn't come to make you feel good about yourself because you're amazing, right? Correct. He comes to make you feel good about yourself because he's amazing, right? And he showers you with his righteousness and he redeems you in his power. But if you're sitting around saying, you know what, I'm I'm good enough. I'm I'm pretty amazing. God's lucky to have me on his team. No, you you've missed it. Yeah. You you've missed the gospel. So Jesus comes into uh, so the triumphal entry is his entrance into Jericho, right? Or Jerusalem. So the triumphal entry is when he comes into Jerusalem, but it's preceded so when when they would come down to celebrate these feasts. So there's three feasts during the year which all Jews are commanded to come back to Jerusalem. One of them, and probably I'd say maybe the most popular would have been Passover, which is this one. And so Jesus would have come down on along the Jordan River, traveled down from Galilee, which is where he spent most of his time. He would have hit the Jordan River right where Jericho is, and then he would come over. And so he goes through Jericho, and then he goes, which is one of the lowest places on the face of the earth, and then you go up the hills and mountains to where you get to Jerusalem. L- lowest so, geographically, you mean, like down, correct. elevation so it's, speaking. It's, it's right. beneath sea level. Um, oh, okay. So like when you get down to the Dead Sea, it's very low. And so if you read the Psalms, some of the Psalms are called the Psalms of Ascent. It's because on the way to these feasts, as you're going up the hills and mountains on the Jericho Road toward Jerusalem, you were singing the Psalms of Ascent. But at what setting, what's, what's happening, when Jesus comes into Jericho, it's very significant. Um, and this is for a kind of a pattern that goes back into the Old Testament. So the last time that God took people that were for, slaves and enslaved to sin and he brought about his kingdom in this world is when 
After Moses delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, Joshua then delivers them into the promised land, right? Mm-hmm. Where God is going to establish his kingdom in the promised land. Uh, so, so the last time God had inaugurated his kingdom, he did so when he conquers Jericho. It's the first foothold of the kingdom in the land. And if you know that story, what's fascinating about it is he gives this weird battle strategy about circling the city seven times and on for seven days and on the seventh day going around seven times and everybody gives out a shout and they blow trumpets and the walls fall down. And, and so the whole idea of the story is God conquers that city upon the shouts and praises of his people. Um, that's what brings the walls down. It's miraculous. It's kind of strange. But when Jesus goes through Jericho, so he's going to encounter Zacchaeus there, and Zacchaeus is willing to give up his whole life and everything else um, for Jesus. It's a beautiful story. But as he's leaving Jericho, we're told that blind men are start shouting, and everyone's like, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, and they start shouting all the louder, and everybody's, you know, quiet, quiet, and they shout all the louder. And so it's making a big deal about volume. And these blind guys are yelling out, you know, son of David, have mercy on us. That's a messianic title. So these blind guys get it, which is ironic, right? You know, the blind see. <laughs> and and so they're crying out with really loud voices. And I think it's kind of cool that the same God who brought down Jericho because of the shouts of the people is now hearing these blind people shout outside the walls of Jericho. And what does he do? He stops in his tracks. And it's almost like you can imagine Jesus, who is the same God who, who delivered Jericho into the hands of his people. Here's these people shouting outside the walls of Jericho, and he stops, and he goes and heals them. And I think what this is announcing is he is about to inaugurate and bring his kingdom into being. And so here here comes the king, and so he travels up the Jericho Road, and when he comes into Jerusalem, they honor him as the coming king. Hmm. It's interesting because the, the story of the blind man, you know, that you were just referring to, Jesus stopped and it says he commanded him to be brought to him, and when he came near, he, Jesus, asked him, the blind man, he says, what do you want me to do for you? The <laughs> blind man says, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people. Now, these are the same people who were just telling the blind man, shut up, shut up, shut up. Don't bother. You know, don't make it. When they saw it, gave praise to God. It's like the you you just you have to imagine that moment. It's like you're, you know, Jesus is approaching. And there's this crowd that's gathered around to see him because he's famous. They're just wondering what Jesus is going to do. And he's approaching yeah. and the crowd is talking. And then from the back, you hear this guy say, what are you talking about? What's, what's, what's going on? What's going on? And yeah, they say, well, yeah. Jesus is coming near. And he starts to shout. And what they're thinking is, you're going to embarrass us now. Jesus isn't going to want to come around because you sound like a crazy man. Shut up, shut up, shut up. We don't want to disturb Jesus. And yet what Jesus shows them is, no, 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 I've come for you. I yeah. have come here for you, you know, and I just think that it had to have been an amazing scene. He, you know, the crowd would fall silent when he commands this guy brought forward. He has the conversation. He restores the guy's sight, and then the crowd erupts. I just yeah. imagine that scene in my and, mind, and it must have been an amazing thing. And, and if you follow this pattern, 
the shouting begins here. You know, people are just exuberant. Oh my goodness, is this the Messiah that we've waited for for centuries? And he's, you know, it's showing tons of hope. This guy's been miraculous. He's got a following. His miracles are validated. He just performed some more miracles now in Jericho. And so as he goes up the Jericho road, he's got an entourage that's coming. One of the things when you read the passage of, of the triumphal entry, which is Palm Sunday, you'll notice the word shout appears a lot. And the idea is God's deliverance comes upon the shouts of his people. Mm. And, and one of the patterns that I love so much is if, is if you look when Jesus comes back the second time, right? So when he, his next triumphal entry, right. you know, when, he, when he comes back in glory, if you read Revelation 19, look at, look at how it happens. It begins with a small group shouting, and mm. then it grows, and it's like peals of thunder, and then another group joins in, and they're shouting praises and singing to God, and it gets louder and louder and louder and louder and louder and louder, and 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 then it's like the rushing of mighty waters and great peals of thunder, and it, it just grows in louder, 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 and then what's the climax of the praises of his people? And behold... I saw, and I mean, I'm, I'm not reading it in front of me, but it's, it's behold in front of me comes the Savior on a great white horse and his name is faithful and true. And so in this one, Jesus comes in humility. The, the praises of his people brings the Savior on a donkey. Hmm. The next time, the praises of his people and the praises of the saints in heaven and all the angels, he, it, those praises are going to be the precursor of him coming back in a great white horse. Mm. And, and that's going to be the final and great triumphal entry that brings about eternal kingdom of justice and peace. And that's what we look forward to now. We celebrate Palm Sunday and we offer up our praises looking backward. But in a sense, we're also offering up those praises waiting for him to come back, not on a donkey, but on that great white horse. Hmm. Hmm. You know, um, in our personal worship this week, uh, people will have been looking at the story of Zacchaeus. So maybe we don't need to really focus on that very much, but um, he does have that encounter with Zacchaeus. And then, are, are you going to sing? I don't I know that sing? I've ever. I, no. I don't know that I've ever been through a lesson on Zacchaeus without people singing that song. I'm, I've taught I'm middle I'm, school and high school. I'm not going to sing, but I will acknowledge the fact. <laughs> That Zacchaeus is a wee little man. I will mention that. That's a wee you know, little man was he. Yeah, okay. It's, All right, uh, moving we, on. We, moving on. We don't need to sing. But, it's middle school teacher coming out. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but then after he goes through Jericho, when he comes into Jerusalem, as you say, he's, he's riding on a donkey. Now, what is the significance of Jesus riding that, what, riding that donkey? What does that call back to? So if you go back through the Old Testament, one of the things you'll find is the great stories of deliverance tend to bring the protagonist riding on a donkey. So like when Abraham has his great moment where he's going to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, they go mounted on a donkey. When Moses returns to Egypt after the burning bush, he returns to Egypt mounted on a donkey. Um, but, but even more than that, there's, there's a stark difference between a king who comes mounted on a horse in, a, in this fallen world and a king that comes mounted on a donkey. And I'll give you two examples of how they differ. So if, if you're looking at the very first king that comes onto the scene in the history of Israel, his name is Saul, and when you're reading through 1 Samuel, get, you get to a chapter, and the whole chapter is devoted to Saul searching for his donkeys, and he can't find his donkeys. So the idea is this king doesn't come mounted on a donkey because he can't find his donkeys. 
and he's going to be a really bad king. But David, when his father sends him to Saul to serve, and this is when he's going to go up against Goliath and all that, David goes to Saul mounted on a donkey with bread and wine, the emblems of communion. So he comes in a posture of humility. David's going to be a good king. Then you get to when David dies and the throne is about to go to the next generation, one of David's sons, while David's on his deathbed, tries to steal the throne. His name's Adonijah, and he goes through all the pomp and circumstance and wants everybody to see how mighty and tough he is, and so he comes into power riding on horses and chariots and all these things. He wants everybody to see how great I am, and David says, no, it's not going to be Adonijah. I want you to take Solomon and I want you to put him on my donkey, hmm. and he's going to be coronated king. And the idea is, if you're coming on as a horse, it's because you're proud. You want everybody to fear you. You want everybody to see how mighty and wonderful you are. But if you come on a donkey, it's saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a king. I'm, I'm with you. I'm lowly. I'm gentle. I'm humble. I'm not threatening. I'm coming to serve with you. Um, and so the greatest kings in a broken world come on donkeys and it's a sign of gentleness it's not threatening and it's humble the uh the chapter that you were uh, talking about is first samuel 9 that's where mm-hmm. saul is sent off to look for the donkeys of his father his father's name was kish <laughs> which to me is just i don't know like, when you read the verse it says now the donkeys of kish saul's father were lost <laughs> I'm like, that's just a but, funny thing to say, you know. <laughs> but you, I mean, you get, like, you read that chapter and you're like, you know, here we have the inauguration of a new king and it gives us a whole chapter where he's running around looking for donkeys and you're kind of like, who cares? <laughs> you know, like, really, you're going to devote so much ink to looking for donkeys, but that's sending a very deliberate message. The good kings and a broken world come on donkeys. They relate to the lowly. And that's, oh, that's what good. Jesus that's what Jesus is going to do. That is awesome. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey signifying his that he's coming in humbly that he's mm-hmm. you know he's coming in to deliver rather than to conquer. Um, yeah. you know that's it's awesome. That's cool. Um now what's the the what's the deal with the Mount of Olives? So one of the cool things so that, to add to the symbolism, right? You know, when, when they were imagining the coming Messiah, they imagined this militaristic, you know, that God's glory was going to return and all power and might, and you were going to have this Messiah king that came to overthrow Rome, and he was going to be kind of this warrior, right? And so when, in the Old Testament, 600 years before you get to Palm Sunday, you have the Lord who was dwelling in the temple, at the Temple of Solomon, and there comes a passage in Ezekiel chapter 10 when Israel and, and Jerusalem had gotten so absolutely wicked that the Lord, through all of his prophets, is warning, I will leave. I will leave. I won't let you defile my name like this. And eventually, he makes good on his promise, and we're told that the glory of the Lord departs from the temple, and it goes and it sits on top of the Mount of Olives for a while before it leaves, and after the glory of God departs, then... Jerusalem gets conquered by the Babylonians. And so for 600 years, they're waiting for God to return, and they always believed that the glory of God would return the same way the glory of God departed from over top the Mount of Olives. Hmm. And so when Jesus goes to Bethpage, which is on the other side of the Mount of Olives, 
he says, get me a donkey, which is to fulfill the prophecy that's given in Zechariah 9 that prophesied that the Messiah would come gentle and lowly riding on a donkey. And so when Jesus comes and he hits the top of the Mount of Olives, it's not the glory of God as you would imagine, this flaming fire and cloud and frightening. And No, it's this gentle servant that now is above the Mount of Olives, which is every bit the glory of God and human flesh. And he's coming down to the city to return the glory of God. And where does he go? He's going to go to the temple, his house. Um, and so it's saying God's glory is returning to his people. And one of the things, just to maybe help the folks that aren't familiar with the uh, Bible lands geography, haven't looked at the maps <laughs> and so forth, the Mount of Olives is really just a really big hill. I mean, yes. it's not it's not like a mountain. Like when we say Mount of Olives, yeah. none of the mountains in Jerusalem are mountains as we think of. Right. It's it, I mean, it's a, it's a big hill. It's a good sized hill. I'd be really tired about one third of the way up, <laughs> you know. So, but it was it's not a mountain. It's a mount. Right. It's a hill, and it was. Do you think there's any significance to the fact that the Mount of Olives was used as a burial site for the city? Sure. So the the idea, so you know how the Jews believe that God is going to come back from the east? Well, the Mount of Olives is on the east side. So Jews who do not believe that Jesus um, was the Messiah are still waiting for the Lord to come back from the east. And so they the whole Mount of Olives is covered with these burial boxes. They look like rocks from a distance, but they're actually burial boxes Mm -hmm. all over the slope of the tomb. And so the idea is when the Lord comes back, they want to be buried on the east side of Jerusalem because Mm. that's where the Lord is coming back. And we believe, you know, that the writings about the the second coming of Jesus have that same idea, you know, as lightning flashes from the east to the west. So he comes from the east is the idea. God is going to return from the east. Huh. That's Which is... You know, the rising of the sun? Sure. It's a picture of resurrection. It's a new beginning. Cool. So um, then as he's coming into Jerusalem, we have the famous scene with the the, uh, palm branches. I mean, I think that when I I was a kid, um, I – of course, I grew up in Florida, okay, and I thought that palm trees were something that only Florida had. You know, I was like, I believe that that we we were – you know, it's like if you weren't – tropical yeah i mean i wasn't just florida but i but you know it was florida and the caribbean and you know maybe hawaii you know places (laughs) like that Um, but this idea that palm branches would figure uh, prominently and and significantly into the imagery of this triumphal entry Mm -hmm. um first of all I i mean my first question is are we talking about the same kind of palm trees that we have here in florida Similar. Similar? Okay. Similar. And what was the significance of the palm branches? What was that all about? So if you, if you go back, going back to some of the most ancient literature that we have about palms, you know, like when they built, when Solomon built the temple, they decorated all of the walls of the temple with images of cherubim angels, which were kind of like the, the angels that separated man from God. They were guardian kind of picture angels and, and palm trees. So the, the temple was decorated with palm trees. Uh, because throughout all of ancient history, the palm has been associated uh, with victory and immortality. Okay. And so, like, if you go to the, the god Nike, where it, with the god of victory, she's always carrying around a palm branch. And that, that's victory. So that was always symbolic of victory. If you go into, like, Egyptian mythology, the god He is the god of kind of immortality. And palm branch is always the symbol of immortality 
in 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 Egypt, and it's a kind of an evergreen kind of a tree. They they just they don't go in and out of season. They're always got their palms out, and so the idea is they're immortal. Okay. And so the combination of these things, which Jerusalem would have been steeped in both Roman and Egyptian mythology, they'd have been familiar with the influences of it. You know, when they're waving the palm branches, you know, that's what they were commanded to do during certain feasts as a celebratory thing of, of Jewish feasts. So when they lay down palm branches in front of this king, the idea is here is one who's holy, right? You know, the temple is decorated with palms. So here's one who's holy, but he's also one that's coming to bring victory, and he's also coming with eternal life, and this kingdom will reign forever is the idea. Um, and so they lay this down as his road, and they're laying down their cloaks on top of it, which was a little bit more normal for what you would do for a king in the ancient world. You would kind of, like, we roll out the red carpet for sure. people that we consider important. The same idea. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, it's, and it's obviously they knew the symbolism of what mm-hmm. they were doing with, oh, with laying sure. down the palm branches. It wasn't just because they thought someday this will make a lovely decoration of the Protestant churches in the United States of America. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they weren't concerned with our decor. There was a lot of meaning to the palm branches. Because I do think that that there's that for some people, they're like, Palm Sunday, that's the Sunday we decorate the church with palm branches. Well, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And we make little crosses out of folded up palm leaves. Yes. <laughs> Did so, you do that? Make crosses out of folded up palm leaves. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that's a because that's just an easy craft to keep the Sunday school kids busy for a while. So, so one of the things that actually comes out of that that's also in the liturgical calendar. Um, we, we celebrate Ash Wednesday, you know, to begin the liturgical season, and you know, forty days goes by, and then we land on Palm Sunday. Um, or Easter, I'm sorry. But so those 40 days, what, what they do when you take the ashes and you put the little cross on your forehead with ashes, on Ash Wednesday, the idea is you're celebrating or you're remembering, maybe not celebrating, your own mortality. And so when, when they apply the ashes to your forehead, they typically say, you know, from dust you were taken to dust you shall return. And they put the sign of a cross on your head. Mm-hmm. Well, those ashes actually come from the palms that were used for Palm Sunday and in the services. They're burned, and their ashes then make the ashes that are applied the next year on Palm Sunday. And so the idea is you take this, this palm, which is supposed to be the symbol for immortality, right? Mm-hmm. And it's burned to ash. In other words, we were made to live forever, and yet we're still not living forever we're still returning to the dust. And so when you put the symbol of the cross on your forehead, it's like, I remember that I am not immortal yet. I'm still mortal. I'm still returning to the dust. But my hope, the symbol of the cross, my hope is in the one who comes to bring eternal life and I wait for him to raise me up. Hmm. Um, so that's the idea. It's taking this the symbol of the palm, which is supposed to be immortality, reduced to ash because that's our current lot and we put the cross on our forehead because we remember our hope that is coming to bring us eternal life now you say that the the feast that uh, jesus was coming to jerusalem because this was the feast of passover mm-hmm. how does Pas- unleavened bread yeah the piece of the feast of the unleavened bread how does the the how does that feast of passover figure into the the progression through the week i mean it's oh, it's huge there's there's 
connections there, right? Mm-hmm. So if you went back to, you know, first century and you talked to somebody, you know, in the days of Jesus and you said, hey, what are you doing for Palm Sunday? That have looked at you like, what? There's no such thing as Palm Sunday. The reason. <laughs> it's true. It wasn't. The re- that, yeah. yeah. The reason why the, the city is swelling is because it, on the Hebrew calendar, it was called Nisan 10. Nisan was the name of their month the 10th day of Nisan. Right. And so on the 10th day of Nisan is when you started preparing for Passover. And in the, the Torah, Moses' writings, when he gives the law of how you're to celebrate Passover, he says that everybody is to select their lamb. Remember, Passover uh, is during the 10th plague when, when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. They're commanded to get a lamb to make sure it's a one-year-old male unblemished lamb. They're to keep it in their home for four days and then after they kill the lamb, they eat the lamb. They're to take the blood and put it on the doorposts of their home. And then that night in the 10th plague, the spirit of death passed over the houses that had the blood on the doorposts. That's why it's called passed over. The spirit of death passed over their houses. Mm-hmm. But on Nisan 10 is the day that they were commanded to take the lamb into their home. And so it's no accident. Jesus, who's the lamb of God, Paul calls him the Passover lamb. You know, that he comes into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan. It's like, here's the lamb. He's shown up right on this day. And, you know, for the next four days, that lamb, back in the days of Moses, that lamb was to be inspected to make sure that it had no blemish. Well, what is Jesus going to be doing for the next four days? He's going to be getting interrogated by the priests. He's going to be inspected by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all the legal experts. And so he's being inspected, right? And so then you get to the Last Supper when they would slay, you know, on Nisan 14 is when they would slay the lambs uh, back in, on, in the days of the Passover. And so this is when you, you see Jesus at the Last Supper holding up the bread saying, this is my body, and holding up the wine saying, this is my blood. And then on the 15th of Nisan would have been the beginning of the, the first fruits, and that's when you have Jesus who literally after the, Pas- after the Last Supper is going to be arrested, and within 24 hours, he's going to be crucified, nailed to a cross, dead, buried in the tomb. And on Nisan 17, which we'll get to later, when Jesus is resurrected, oh man, there's so much significant about what... The significance of Nisan 17 is really, really pretty cool. Hmm. So from Nisan 10 to Nisan 17... There's tremendous. So Nisan 17, to kind of blow the ending, Nisan 17 would have been the day um, that Moses and the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea. So they're delivered out of the land of death and bondage, right? They get a new beginning. That's the day of resurrection as Nisan 17, but it's also the day the Israelites get out of Egypt. Mm. And so all this is, is patterned, you know, with huge significance, Jesus is greater than Moses. He is the better Passover lamb. He is the true deliverance and the greater deliverer. Hmm. So then we get through Palm Sunday, and as you were saying, over the next four days, he would be examined. Um, maybe maybe it would be a good idea to kind of take people through the week, you know? I mean, like because we think about, okay, Palm Sunday, got that. Yeah. Yeah, we then, then we fast forward then, to Thursday. Exactly. We jump right <laughs> forward to Thursday. We don't look at what happened to him over the next few days. So Yeah. So let's let's maybe do that. What happens what is Monday like? What's you know, what does he do on Monday? So so Monday he wakes up. So he stays in Bethany with probably with Mary Martha and and the home with them uh, during the evenings, which is right on the other side of the Mount of Olives. 
And so in the morning, he'd wake up and he would again come over the top of the Mount of Olives, go through the, the valley and into the city of Jerusalem. But on this morning, he wakes up and he's walking toward Jerusalem and he sees this fig tree from a distance that has lots of leaves, right? And, and it looks really beautiful. And he says, oh man, I'm really hungry. But he gets closer to the fig tree and he sees that though it's got all these leaves all over it, it's not bearing any fruit. And so he, he curses it and says, may you never bear fruit again. And it withers like almost immediately. Uh, and everybody's like, man, this, he's really hangry, you know. <laughs> what was that all about? Quick, but, get Jesus a fig before he curses us. <laughs> yeah. But what he's doing there is really, really, really important. Um, it's the it's the metaphor that kind of captures everything that he's going to do for the next two days. Because Jerusalem to Jesus, you know, when we think of it, we think of the holy city. When Jesus looks at Jerusalem, he sees, he calls it the city that kills the prophets. It's the city that's self-righteous. It's the city where the religious leaders are oppressing everybody else, but they're not even doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's the city that's defiled worship and, and made it about commerce. Jerusalem to him would have been really sad, really. Um, and so he comes across this fig tree and he says, oh, look at it. It's so beautiful, which Jerusalem would have been. The temple would have looked amazing. The marble streets of Herod would have looked beautiful, right? But there's no fruit. Mm. There's no fruit. These religious leaders are hypocrites. They're self-righteous. They don't care for the poor. They don't care about mercy or justice or peace. They, they're all self-absorbed. They have no fruit. And so when Jesus comes across this fig tree, which looks really beautiful from a distance, but when you get close and examine it, it has no fruit. When he says, when he curses the fig tree, what he's really doing is cursing this self-righteousness. Remember, what, when you think of fig leaves, remember that goes all the way back to, to Genesis 3. Remember right after the fall, when Adam and Eve are overwhelmed with shame, what do they do? They hide behind figs, fig leaves. And so Jesus sees this fig tree that's covered up with fig leaves, but has no fruit. And what he's saying is Jerusalem is like this fig tree. It looks beautiful, but there's no fruit, and it will be condemned. You know, and I've, I'm just going to jump in here for a second and say that um, I have, ta- I mean, I've had conversations with people about the parable. Of the, well, it's not really a parable. He actually cursed a real fig tree. It's not a story. Right. Um, and they're like, they don't understand, what, you know, and you explaining the symbolism of it. I hope that people can then understand that now that explains this other statement that's made, because that story occurs, for example, in, in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark is one mm-hmm. place where it's told. And it, and it says here, it says, on the following day when they came uh, from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And that comment in there, there have been people that have said, so then why did he get angry? If it wasn't the season for figs, and they knew that, why was he angry? And I'm like, it's not about the figs. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's the, the point that the, the, the Jesus cursing the fig tree was not about the figs. Right. And so hopefully your explanation of that now makes people understand that story a little bit more because... Yeah. On the surface of it, if you don't understand how he's looking at the fig tree and, and how that is symbolically representing the city of Jerusalem and and the fact that it looks good but has no fruit, you would you really wouldn't understand the story very much because it, it he it, it's apparent to them that this this fig tree had no figs because it wasn't fig season. <laughs> it's like, and so yeah. 
you know, that he's, kind of thing. He's talking past the fig tree he is. about the temple. Yeah. And and so and and that's even further validated by the fact that he's going to go down and this is going to be the day when he cleanses the temple, which for some people seeing Jesus get angry and cleansing the temple the way that he did is kind of shocking. Yeah. So so what happens? He's coming down and again everybody's shouting. The children are excited to see him. You know, the Pharisees and religious leaders are saying, oh, "Do you hear what these children are saying there? You know, they're ascribing to you that you're God or that you're the Messiah." Um, you know, when he came in on the on the triumphal entry, people are yelling peace in heaven like he was coming to broker peace between God and man. Like they're assigning to him all these titles and it's infuriating the religious leaders. And then Jesus goes into the temple, and he's infuriated. And the reason why he's infuriated is he see it had become, he calls it a den of robbers, and that's exactly what it had become. So you have all these Jews coming from all over the world, multiple countries. They come into Jerusalem, and the self-righteous religious leaders of the day, you know, made the, you know, they said all of your coins are blasphemous because they have pictures of, of these different gods or different leaders on them. And so they're, they're sacrilegious. And so we can't take them. So if you're going to worship God, you need to exchange your currency to get currency that we accept. And then they would just totally rip everyone off with the exchange rate so that they could make a ton of money. And Jesus comes in and he's looking at all these people who've traveled hundreds of miles some of them more than a thousand miles to come and worship at the temple, and then they're being exploited. And some of the poor people that could not afford the lamb after the exchange rate are left to buy doves or maybe nothing at all. And so they're being prohibited from worshiping by the greed of the religious leaders, and Jesus isn't having it. The other thing, too, I want to try to help people understand because they think Jesus entered the temple and started doing these things. It, when entered the, the temple was a big thing and it was not it wasn't like jesus barged into church and started kicking over pews <laughs> this kind of stuff happened at the very outer parts of the temple the temple Correct. was the temple had several and when they came into the temple they were coming into an area that wasn't you know it wasn't like the sanctuary yeah, yeah you were still outdoors it yeah. was a courtyard is the idea right so he came into an area where there would have been people sort of congregating around and um you know that kind of thing so it wasn't like jesus didn't disrespect the temple by doing this you know totally not right totally not and so the the idea here is you know i think it's jeremiah who is it that writes you know you have, it's Jeremiah who writes, you know, my father's house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. So when Jesus declares that upon these crooks and he starts overturning the tables with their money and driving out people that are, that are exploiting other people, you know, he's actually fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. And, and one of the things that I've always loved about this is, you know, he's jealous like he is protecting worship i mean imagine how angry god would be if on the on the front door of our church we put up a turnstile where you had to put in your coins or your dollar bills before you were allowed to come and worship god like that's such an offense to the lord because you know one blessed are the the poor the Lord loves those that are downcast, especially. He's, he's a tremendously gracious to those that are in need, right? Those are the people he's got a, a tremendous heart for. And so the powerful and the wealthy are exploiting and turning away the poor. 
And this should be comforting when you see Jesus get angry about that. Mm-hmm. He looks after the poor. It infuriates him that anybody would be barred from coming and drawing near to worship him over money. Um, that's just not acceptable. I think the the House of Prayer references. Uh, I think it's Isaiah fifty six. Um, oh, is it? Yeah, Isaiah fifty six uh, verses six and seven. Uh, he says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting because... So it's a combination because I, it's actually, in addition to that, it's Jeremiah 7 where he puts the other side because he's he's coming after his people and he says in Jeremiah 7 verse 9 through 11, this is what he says. He says, will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incense to pagan gods and follow after all these other gods you haven't known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe? safe to do all these detestable things, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to hmm. you? <laughs> wow, that's and, cool. I mean, he does. So, he's, he's, he's what, it's what the house is supposed to be and what it became. You know, it's like he connects them yeah. both together there. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, Isaiah and Jeremiah, cool. Yeah, so Jesus is taking on, you know, the voice of God speaking through the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah in the flesh here saying, I'm not going to tolerate this. And he's you, also reminding them that he knows the Old Testament better than they do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this is also a very stern reminder for those of us that are in occupational ministry. Like, you better not ever bar somebody from a place of worship because they don't have what you want them to contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not about that. Well, and especially in in that passage in Isaiah, too, he's he's talking specifically about gathering the foreigners into his holy mountain. So there you go. Yeah. So that's that that is cool. So then after he does that, after he he knocks over the tables and, you know, that kind of thing, um, then at that point, I guess he, he just went back home. Right. I mean, he just that was it for the day. Right. That was it for Monday. Yeah, so the way that the Gospels approach it, that seems like the end of that Monday. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm going to go in, I'm going to cl- clean out the temple, and then I'm going to go home. <laughs> it's a good but, day's work, I'm done. You know? but, but what you do is you get the impression, okay, Palm Sunday, everybody's cheering his, you know, singing his praises, they're loving them, they're throwing down their coats and palm branches. Uh, but on Monday, Jesus, Jesus fails the uh, how to win friends and influence people course you know, here he's he's confronting because one of the other misconceptions that we have is that all the people who are in Jerusalem are right with Jesus. They don't like the Pharisees. They don't like the religious leaders. No. In Jesus's day, the Pharisees were the most popular sect of Israel. People looked up to them like they were super holy. They were they were, you know, the best hope of Israel to bring back righteousness. You know, they were going to these priests for their sacrifice. And Jesus is coming in saying, you know, these men who you've put all your hope, they're they're frauds. Mm. It, it would have really upset the crowds. I mean, some of the crowds probably surely, you know, particularly the lowly and the outcasts probably said, yeah. Um, but for your average 
Israel or average Jew living in that day to hear somebody, you know, coming down hard on the Pharisees and priests of that day would have been shocking. You would have felt scandalized by hearing it. So he has, you know, he the triumphal entry that's going to rattle the cages of the religious leaders. Then he shows up in the temple, <laughs> you know, and, and basically <laughs> takes apart their little profit making scheme. So by the time he comes back on Tuesday, they're looking for him, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, he's it's he's like, got a big mark on his back. Jesus, we're waiting to talk to you. So, so you can imagine, you know, if I'm one of his disciples, Monday night I'm going. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Hopefully things calm down from here, and they don't. They get more intense on Tuesday. Um, Jesus is going to bring the heat <laughs> on Tuesday, except he's not just going after the commerce. Now he's engaging directly and in the crowds calling out their religious leaders as hypocrites and blind guides and snakes. And, I mean, he, he lights into them and tells them that they're sons of hell and that their converts are going to be children of hell. Like, he lays into them something fierce on Tuesday. So he shows up at the temple, and they come out, and they, <laughs> they confront, which is another thing, by the way, that's interesting to me because, it, you know, I mean, he, he, he does all this in the temple on Monday turns over the tables, runs them all out, and says, look, this is not the way the temple is supposed to be. Then he goes home, and he comes right back the next morning <laughs> to the yeah. same place, you know? So, I mean, this whole day is going to be Jesus laying down these parables that are condemning the religious leaders. For You know, like he tells the parable of the tenants, for example, which is, you know, you have a master that, that allows these managers to run his vineyard, these tenants, and when when he sends people to collect, you know, they, they kill all the people that he sends to collect. And he thinks, well, maybe if I send my son, maybe <laughs> they'll respect my son. And you can see where Jesus is going. And they end up killing his son. So Jesus is predicting they're going to kill him. I but think he is he's making them say, this is you. You are these wicked tenants that were supposed to be offering up fruit to the Lord. But you're so wicked. You keep it all for yourselves. You're so nasty. Even if God sent you his son, you'd kill him. Mm-hmm. And he's laying down these parables that are just cutting right to their heart. And or should have cut right to their heart. Before he actually gets into the parables, there's a story here in uh, at the end of Mark 11, which is one of actually has always been one of my favorite stories. It says, and they came again to Jerusalem as he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, which I imagine, I just imagine, again, I'm imagining that scene. It's like, you, you know, <laughs> Jesus steps inside and, and the crowd begins like, he's here, he's here, he's here, he's here, he came back, he's here, he came back. And, and the, everybody's expecting that he should be wildly intimidated. Sure. And he just walks in. You know, and you just you can imagine them. I'm imagining them rushing out from wherever they were hanging out in the inner parts of the of the temple area there. And there's like there's they're still putting their hats on and whatnot. And they're <laughs> they're running out to confront Jesus, and they surround him. I kind of I sort of see this as like they rush up to him from all sides, and they said to him, "By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them?" And Jesus. <laughs> this is so cool. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. I wonder if at that moment they saw this coming. If they uh-oh. thought, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. 
And it says, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. He's such a master. And and part of the reason, John the Baptist had been telling everybody, you know, behold the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one. I need to decrease. He needs to increase. So John the Baptist gave Jesus his endorsement, and John the Baptist is also wildly popular with the people. And so when Jesus throws this at these leaders, he knows they're trapped. They can't answer. And when they answer, we do not know, it says, and Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> it's just such a masterful story, exactly. You know, it's like that's just one of those things that it's it's almost like a superhero character to this sense, but it's because he's absolutely not gonna play he's not playing to the crowd, he's not playing to the religious leaders. He's you know, I mean, he's there, he's just this enormous self possession. It, mm-hmm. it must have been such an astonishing moment to witness if you'd been the crowd standing around. And so then he jumps into the parables. And that brings us to the admittedly abrupt end of part one. But part two was posted at the same time. So go grab part two and I'll jump back in the middle of my own sentence and ask Sam about the parables Jesus told. I hope you enjoy it. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.